Welcome to Product Knowledge, the podcast about branding and marketing innovative products that improve people's lives. I'm Andrea Schwabi, Director of Media Services at Graphos Product. Marketing is about differentiation. Everyone in business has thought about, rehearsed, or delivered an elevator speech about why you should choose their business. The largest differentiation you have may not be your product. In fact, focusing too much on selling your product features could be counterproductive. Research is clear that people make decisions on an emotional level and then consciously rationalize the decision to explain it. But how do you make use of knowing choices are emotional? How do you differentiate your business emotionally? Ken Aber and Ian Chimande wrote the book, Why Should I Choose You? in seven words or less. They've developed a process for companies to come up with more than just a mission statement. It's a promise and an attitude. Grafo CEO Laurier Mandin talked with Ian Chimande on Skype from Toronto to do a deeper dive. He started things off by asking what the magic is around the book's seven-word subtitle. Every company and every product has an essence to it, a thing that makes it uniquely remarkable. And, um, and then it has features and benefits that come out of that. But at the core is what is its essence. And... Part of the problem is companies only think in terms of features and benefits, figuring out what those are, and making sure that list is as long as possible to appeal to as many people as possible. Um, or they do think about what the essence is, but the process that they have for doing that is so superficial that it renders the answer meaningless. And then without the really good guidance of what is the essence, all of the rest of it falls apart. You know, we called frontline people on purpose. Uh, you could say, why didn't you talk to the executives whose job it is to define this? Uh, but the thing is, what we wanted to do is we wanted to find out, even if an executive could articulate it well, or reasonably well at least, did it make it down to the front line? Because that's where it matters. It doesn't matter that an executive knows what it is. He or she is not, you know, going to be responsible for sales in the way the frontline people are. So we wanted to test the company's ability to communicate itself as spoken by the frontline people. And basically every company got an F. And it's because they don't go through the process of knowing who they are. So, and, and where this knowing who they are, uh, the book is called Why Should I Choose You? Because that's one aspect of our process. But really at the center of our process is knowing who you are. And uh, again, that's a, that's a question companies don't ask. And when they do, the process is usually too superficial. And um, so what we often do is we, we recite the Oscar Wilde quote. I wrote a long letter because I didn't take time, take the time to write a short letter. Companies don't take the time to write the short letter. So they write the long letter that's rambling and sort of notionally circuitously captures what they're about. And after you hear, after you read the long letter, you go, uh, I don't really get it. Whereas if you take the time to write the short letter, then people get it. So what we did is we said, all right, the short letter has to start with a seven word or less headline. And that seven word or less headline has to be the string that ties everything together. That it has to be the common thread. And when it, when it captures, when it, when it crystallizes 
everything about the company in a single uh, compelling phrase, then that's all the frontline people need. And if they know who the company is and they've got some supporting, you know, underlying narrative or dialogue of what that means to its fullest extent, then they can just start talking about the company. And you'll talk to two different frontline people in the same company, and they'll tell you the story in an entirely different way, but they will both communicate exactly the same thing because they're grounded in who the company or who the process is. And so none of these companies were able to articulate internally what it is that made them uniquely remarkable. So everybody in the organization is left sort of stumbling in the dark. Yeah, what's, the, what's the amazing? Story, what's amazing to me is sorry, that nobody nobody is, seemed to know that that question even was out there. <laughs> Go ahead with the no, no. That, well, that yeah, that's the thing. Most of them don't know that that question exists. Clients often say to us, "What do we do to prepare?" And we say, "You contemplate the question. If everything you do is a means to an end, what's your end purpose?" And that sort of throws them for a loop because. They all think everything they do is the means to an end. And what that question says is, no, that's the means. Sorry, they think that, that everything they do is the end. And we say, no, 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 that's the means to the end. What's the end purpose? Why do you exist? Like Simon Sinek, start with why. Why do you exist? What's your purpose? What it, What is it that makes you uniquely remarkable? And express that in seven words or less so that everybody can understand it, everybody can remember it, and everybody can repeat it. Um, I want to go back to the, to the story about the company that you're talking about. It's a company called Interiors, Inc., I believe, right? That that has... Uh, yeah. That, yeah, I gave the punchline already. But... That has that, that statement. <laughs> but what they came to discover was, you know, they don't just create this in, industrial shelving in, in stores. They don't just... They're not just you know, selling and, 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 um, and cookie cuttering these, these plans, what they really deliver to their customer, which is those stores like Home Depot is getting those stores owning or sorry, operating and selling and generating revenue weeks sooner, which can put millions of dollars into the, in, into of revenue in, into the businesses earlier and create exactly. an immediate success as soon as a store launches, um, and, and take away that big fear of opening late. So to me, and they went right. with opening sooner, which is, you know, it's, it's a take on opening soon, which you see in front of stores already and people get, it's kind of, you know, it's in that vernacular already. Um, and, and it just, you know, in, in not seven words, but two words encapsulate so much about the, the value that's delivered. And also for everybody within that company, they know that that's the one thing that they've got to do. They're recognized for, they've, they've sold this based on, on that this store is going to open sooner. So they've got no options. They've got, you know, if, if nothing oh, else, yeah, they've, yeah, got they got to, they've got to deliver. <laughs> You're going to say it out loud. You've got to deliver. It was an interesting conversation because you know, we had breakfast with the CEO one morning. I'll give you give your listeners a context. This company does retail shelving, right? So Home Depot builds a box. They go in, they put up all the rack shelving, and when they're done, the store opens. So that's sort of the context for their business. And if you ran into the CEO at a party and you said, hey, you know, what do you do for work? He would say, I do retail shelving. And so we're at breakfast with him, and he said, um, you know, I know there's a magic to my company, but every time I open my mouth to talk about it, uh, it, it sounds so generic, so banal, so like anything any, any of my competitors would say. 
And we said, John, it's because you don't know what business you're really in. And, and to his credit, without, without a delay, he replied, you're right. I don't know what business I'm really in. And, and that's, so when he said at the cocktail party, I'm in the business of retail shelving, he's actually in the category of retail shelving. And there are lots of other companies in that category. What business is he in inside the category of retail shelving? And because they had been in three in business for three generations, as opposed to their competitors who were in business for five or 10 years, they had developed techniques and processes and systems and procedures that got their, their projects finished significantly faster. So as you said in the lead in, if you can get, if you can get a store open a week or two sooner, that's a week or two of retail sales that they wouldn't otherwise have. And at the time for Home Depot, that was north of a million dollars a week for a store. So that was, that was real money. And that's when, you know, one of his executives said, purely as a joke, he said, you know, in our signs where it says opening soon, I want ours to say opening sooner. Well, Ken's in my jaw hit the floor and we just went, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. And then we bulletproof the core proposition, which is primarily making sure that it, resonates at a deep emotional level, emotional level, not rational level. It resonates at a deep emotional level with all material stakeholders, but differently. It doesn't resonate with all of them in the same way. So to a VP of construction, it says, oh, I'm at, you know, at Home Depot, I'm going to generate revenue faster. For an employee, it says bragging rights, right? Like when you think of retail shelving, you don't think there's a whole lot to brag about in a business like that. But now if you are recognized as the company that is all about getting finished faster, that's a cause, right? That's a purpose. That's really interesting to you. So you have two different stakeholder groups. You have your customer, the VP of construction, who it resonates with one way and you have your employees who it resonates with in another way, but with both of them, it resonates at a deep emotional level. And that's how, when all material, when it resonates with all material stakeholders, that's when we know we've got the right core proposition. And that emotional resonance is so important. It's something that you you do you devote a section um, in the book to talking about, and and that was another area that really you know it it really resonated, no pun intended, with me, um, because you know as human beings we're we're not rational decision makers. We're rationalizing ones. So we make decisions right. based on, on things we're feeling, you know, on what our gut is saying on our lizard brain, um, you know, that our limbic brain. And then we, yeah. we, we make the decision and then we go and rationalize it. And that's where we, we might go right. back to those, you know, the features and benefits. But, um, but to me, that was really meaningful. And, 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 that's what kind of got me thinking along the lines of what is the biggest pain that my clients feel when they're coming to me is they know that they have blind spots. They know they have stuff they don't see. They know they don't, you know, they can't look at stuff objectively. They don't have the experience they need to make these decisions. Um, right. So, so that's, that was where I could see that it's, it's the stuff that, that we see that they don't. That's why, you know, that, that's where we bring the value. It's, it's not just in the fact that we can put together strategies and do these other things. It's, sure. it's that, sure. it's that ability. And, but it was th that part of the book, even though, you know, that's the part I felt I should have known because we, we, we spent a lot of time talking about how, how people make these buying decisions. When we apply it to ourselves, you know, 
that was what made so much sense to me is just understanding, okay, well, you know, how do people make these decisions? They, they don't necessarily know what it is that, that their biggest fear is at this point. Exactly. Um, um, which is why, which is why so much market research doesn't work, but it's, you know, it, it was one of the interesting things for us in getting introduced to Simon Sinek seven or eight years ago. A friend of ours sent us an email saying, you know, either you're ripping him off or he's ripping you off or you've arrived in the same place at the same time. And, and it was the latter. But um, watching his TED Talk was fascinating for us because, A, it validated this whole notion of the core proposition on both uh, a logical level and a neurological level, but also... It was where, you know, we got introduced to to this whole idea of emotional decision making about how you actually make decisions in the limbic part of your brain, which has no capacity for language, which is why we're often struggling to say uh, it's sort of intuitive or it's vague or I can't really explain that's because it's trapped in your limbic system. I can't put it into words because the limbic system doesn't have words. It's just it just has these these impulses and feelings. So the decisions are made in the limbic system. And Simon Sinek does a wonderful job in this in his TED Talk, his original TED Talk, of explaining this. Um, we then got a university as a client. And we were explaining all of this stuff. And then we found out the specialty of the president of the university who we were talking to. And it was, it was basically along the lines of emotional decision-making. And we said, do you agree with that, that, you know, we actually make decisions in our limbic system emotionally, and then we do an after the fact rationalization of the decision in our cerebral cortex. And she said, I hate to say it, but it's true. That's what the science is. You guys have created a business around this. It's called Blueprint Business Architecture. Um, and so you have a, a process to help businesses flesh this out. Um, what, what does the process look like? How long is that? Sure. Um, it is six sessions of a half day each. Uh, it's done in our office. So we have a, uh, we have a, we're, our office is in a nice brownstone house in Midtown Toronto. You know, nice living room, poor couches all facing each other. And we sit in a circle, uh, up to four key decision makers from the company, one of whom must be the CEO. We won't do a blueprint without the CEO. And um, so we do six sessions of three hours each, usually a week apart. That's a great amount of time. You, you know, in between sessions, everyone's thinking about stuff. And, it's, and, you know, the conversation is percolating. So we actually start the next session farther ahead than we finish the last one. So that's, that's sort of the, the core um, is it's all done in conversation. And um, then at the end of it, we've, you know, over the six sessions, we've produced uh, 20 or 25 pages of stream of consciousness, consciousness notes. Um, but we have established the core proposition, the seven words or less. We've used it to uh, modify the business architecture or the operations of the company. And then we've also used it to to create what we call the core story, which is the top level strategic narrative of the organization. So what we say is a blueprint guides everything that you do and say. And so that's why we've got steps two and three. Everything you do is your business architecture. 
your operations, day-to-day machinations of the company. Everything you say is your branding, your marketing, your sales, et cetera, et cetera. And so there is, there is an element of the blueprint that extends to your operations, influencing how they work, and an element that extends to your communications, guiding what you say and how you say it. And that part's really important, like the part where you're embedding it into the culture and you're, you're creating that business architecture so that it's not just, you know, in a Google Doc somewhere or, you know, it, it's on the website. But when, you know, when your people are out there, like the like all the people you talk to on those phone calls, they need to know that answer. They need to know um, and, and really be behind that messaging so that it's not just more, more you know, garbage text. That's Yeah, yeah, yeah. More, more word salad. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so. When we, um, when we do the business architecture, we say, okay, this is who you are in seven words or less. And we look at each part of the business and we say, is this part aligned with who you are? And if the answer is yes, we don't touch it. That's great. And if the answer is no, we say, what do we need to do to get this part of the business into alignment with who you are? And that's how we get all the parts of the business working in lockstep towards a common goal. And, um, then there are six for the, for the core story, there are six questions that we have to answer. They're very difficult questions to answer in, in a short form, but that's what we have to do. We have to get them down to between five and seven bullet points. And then what they do is they form this, this narrative in the business architecture part of the blueprint. We never know what parts of the business are going to have to change until we're well into the blueprint except for two parts. We always know that a cultural, you know, embedding of the blueprint in the, uh, in the culture of the company is a critical next step and embedding the blueprint into the marketing story is, is always an important next step because the marketing and sales story always changes as a result of the blueprint because it's so much more powerful. It's so much more focused and it's so much more powerful and companies usually want to rush to get that onto their website um, because they're excited now that they can explain their company for the first time. Yeah, and and there could be a direct connection between having that unique identity and revenue streams, and ideally even overall sales. Right? How do, how does that come about? How does that come about when you did you know change well, yeah, 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 yeah. no, I'll, I'll give you a great, I'll give you a great example of that. We came to um, uh, we got called by this company. Uh, called Eckler. Eckler is a mid-size actuarial firm that specializes in defined benefit pensions. Never in my life did I thought that I would get into the arcana of, of pension plans and that sort of thing. But here we were with Eckler. And um, uh, as uh, most people know who deal with these things, defined benefit pensions are very expensive and onerous for companies. So they're all switching to defined contribution. And you don't need actuaries for that. You, you need actuaries big time for defined benefit pensions. You don't need them for what the world is turning to. So Eckler, when they came to us, they said, we see our, our whole future disappearing and figure that we have five to seven years to, to play out this run, but then we're going to be in deep trouble. And we said, you need to know who you are at your core and that will tell you where to go next. And it, it, we were stunned when actuaries said yes to that because 
uh, I, I mean, I can tell you this joke about actuaries because they told us. They said, um, how do you know when an actuary is an extrovert? When they look at your shoes when they're talking to you rather than their own. So, the, you know, this is a very risk-averse community, and, and they decided to um, go ahead with this, you know, with this non-traditional process. And where it got really interesting, you know, we got them to talk and talk and talk, and we said, okay, here's what we heard in summary. You, um, your clients, the CEO and the CFO of a company, have to figure out what, what to do now with, uh, with big chunks of money that are critical in the future. And, and they said, right. And you um, create mathematical models that help them figure out what decisions to make now about where big chunks of money are going to go in the future. That's correct. And you've given us these three compelling reasons why your mathematical models are better than your competitors. And they said, that's right. And we said, well, it sounds like you're in the business of predicting the future. And poof, all of their heads blew off. The tops of their heads blew off because that was just way too provocative a statement for them. And But where the conversation got to was, um, no, you don't predict the future. But what you do is you create a greater degree of certainty about the future. That's what your mathematical models do. And if you don't create a greater degree of certainty and the confidence, the decision-making confidence that comes with that, then you have no value to the CEO or the CFO. So they adopted um, creating a greater degree of certainty as their core proposition. Now, to your original point about the impact on sales, when you are uh, an actuary or a specialist in defined benefit pensions, your world is narrow and getting narrower by the day. But when you are in the business of creating a greater degree of certainty, all of a sudden, you know, it's sort of like, you know, the blinders that racehorses wear to restrict their view, right? Well, we all have blinders on about our business. You do. We do. Everybody does. And wh whether those blinders are narrow or wide is dependent on how you define your business. And they had uh, a definition that, or sorry, they came up with a definition that widened the blinders because before they had to find, they had to, to find customers who needed their services and defined benefit pensions. Now they need customers who are experiencing uncertainty don't know how to resolve that, but that uncertainty can be resolved by mathematical models. So all of a sudden, you know, the blinders widen and opportunities for business that always existed for you, but you never saw because of how narrowly you defined your business. Yeah, but you define it in this broader way that is totally relevant to your core skill set. And all of a sudden, you see new opportunities for business that you never saw before. When you know exactly who you should be talking to, you discover that that's a much bigger group, right? So you're afraid of you're afraid of getting too narrow because you narrow your target group. But by getting narrow, by getting focused, you actually expand your target group because you realize how many people really need your product. You didn't know that before. You only saw 
a small portion of the people who needed what you, what you sell because of the limitations in how you defined yourself. When you have this more focused, but at the same time expansive definition, you see way more opportunities for business. That's it for this episode of Product Knowledge and our conversation with Ian Chimande, co-author with Ken Aber on the book, Why Should I Choose You in Seven Words or Less? You can get it on Amazon or visit sevenwords.biz. Visit graphosproduct.com where you can find out more about Graphos, our services, ideas, or more podcasts and our blog. All our podcasts are transcribed for the deaf and hard of hearing or for those who just prefer to read. Reach out on Twitter at Graphos Product or email us through the form on graphosproduct.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Andrea Schwabi.